Welcome to the State of the Lakers on Dash Radio. Thank you guys so much for coming to hang out on a Monday. I hope you guys have a good week ahead of you. Nothing too crazy, nothing too busy. I hope you get a time, a, a good amount of time to enjoy a busy week of Lakers basketball. We went from having two games last week to four games this week. Um, a much needed rest for some of the guys, but at the same time, for a guy like LeBron, like getting in and out of the lineup, he almost he just needs games. He needs reps with these guys, so he's going to get those reps this week, God willing, if he can stay healthy. And there's going to be a lot of exciting Lakers basketball to talk about. However, today we're going to go around the league. Um, we're going to talk about the Dame Lillard situation and all the news that came out with him over the course of the last 24 hours. I want to talk a little bit about some of the games that I watched yesterday and some of the differences that I see between the way the Lakers are approaching their season and the way some of these other teams around the league are approaching their season, playing into their strengths and so on and so forth. Uh, I'm going to relay that into a little bit of Lakers having to do with their starting lineup. Uh, then I'm going to give my current take on the MVP race who I have as the current MVP and why and who I think is the best player in the league right now. So uh, some mostly non-Lakers today, but a little bit of Lakers in there as well. Uh, But we'll go ahead and get started with the Dame stuff. So obviously uh, we had reporting come out today that Dame is allegedly starting to get unhappy, not just with the team, but with Chauncey Billups and with the whole overall vibe around the franchise. And this has been kind of like a back and forth roller coaster with Dame for a while now. It's honestly kind of frustrating because you could tell it's mostly narrative flexing, attempting to kind of tell us what's going on from his own perspective rather than the obvious reality of what's going on. I mean, the reality of the situation is, is Dame appears to be unhappy with his basketball circumstances. He appears to not like, as a basketball player, what he's dealing with on a day-to-day basis. And that's normal. That's human. That, to me, is like what happened with Kevin Durant. We can give him a hard time about, you know, going to such a talented team. And we can give him a hard time about deck stacking and things along those lines. But the reality is, is Kevin Durant just got sick of playing crappy basketball. He didn't like the your turn, my turn thing with with Russ. He didn't like that he wasn't able to get much offensively from his role players. He didn't like that they were primarily defensive-focused players, and it turned it into an isolation contest. And he just saw Golden State as an opportunity to advance himself as a basketball player into the best version of himself as a basketball player. And so regardless of what we feel about the outcome and how fair it was, quote-unquote, for Kevin Durant, it was just about basketball. And, And I admired that part of the decision. And I wish Dame Lillard would see the same thing because here's the reality, man. Like, well, you ex- you have two desires here. You are fiercely loyal to the city of Portland, and you are fiercely loyal to that organization and to your teammates. I get that, but you also are clearly unhappy unhappy with your basketball situation, and you want something better. That's okay. You have to understand, Dame, that those two things can't coexist. Portland has demonstrated time and time again that they are not capable of setting you up with a really quality basketball situation. Do you gain something by sticking it out there? Sure. You gain the admiration of some of your peers and of some of the people out in the public. But is that worth more to you than you achieving your desired outcome as a basketball player? Playing the level of offensive basketball that you've always dreamed of playing where you don't have to be a superhero every single night in order for your team to win. Because if you want that, you got to stop caring about what other people You've got to stop caring about what 
I think, or the people on Twitter think. If what you want is a better basketball situation, basketball situation. And the reality is, man, is you've paid your dues in that city for so long. You've put your heart and soul on the line for wins. They can't judge you. The people in that city who do judge you if you decide to leave, they aren't the kind of people you want in your corner anyway. They're just going to get it because that's what they like to do. So at the end of the day, man, I, I, I hope for Dame's sake that he comes to terms with the reality that his desire to have a better basketball situation doesn't have to be tied to Portland. And then he should stop caring so much about making other people happy and make himself happy a little bit. He's paid his dues there. And now, is Dame blameless in this whole thing? No. Dame, Dame has failed to commit to the defensive end of the floor, and he doesn't really commit to staying involved as a basketball player off the ball, which is something that Steph has done such a good job of over the course of his career, and it's absolutely a shortcoming. Dame has fixable flaws, but those to me are separate from the situation that Portland is not a good basketball situation. C.J. McCollum's a great player. He's not good enough to be the number two on a team that consistently competes for a championship. When you have two guards that cannot defend, you need to have anchor defensively in the front court. You need to have players that can clean up messes consistently. That's never been the way this team is designed. Yeah, Norman Powell and Robert Covington are good defensive players, above average defensive players. Neither of them are defensive anchors, though. Guys who consistently can clean up messes that you make in the backcourt. The Portland situation is never really going to pan out to what he wants it to be. And I think it's time for him to stop beating around the bush, stop trying to control the narrative in the press. Dude, everyone's already already has your back. Everyone understands your circumstances here. Just, just make it happen. Just go to the ownership group and tell them it's time. And you know what? They owe it to you, and they're going to take care of you. Get out of Portland. Go, go start fresh somewhere new and live that idealized version of you as a basketball player that we all know that's what you want anyway. Um, All right, so I wanted to move on to this game that I watched yesterday between Utah and Cleveland. And it was super interesting because if you guys remember after the game they lost, the Lakers lost to the Clippers the other night, I was really hard on the Lakers for not really embracing their identity, understanding what they're good at and catering their system and their lineup decisions and, and everything about what they do towards their strengths rather than towards their weaknesses. The Lakers are a team that have really, really good downhill attackers in Russ and LeBron, and they've got a post player who consistently gets mismatches and has the ability to get in the paint in Anthony Davis, and then they have a bunch of shooters. They've got a lot of shooting. Obviously, they've got other archetypes of players that are more defensive-oriented, like Avery Bradley, but the truth of the matter is their best lineups all season long have been with their shooting. When they play Carmelo Anthony, when they play Malik Monk, when they play... Wayne Ellington. When you put those guys next to the to the the basket attackers on the Lakers, that's when they get their best stuff. And it's it's a snowball effect. When they start to score, they get more opportunity to set their defense. They just play better. But we haven't seen that enough this year because the Lakers aren't leaning into that. That is more of a counter. They fall back to lineups with their shooting rather than starting with lineups with their shooting. And it's funny because I watch Utah and Cleveland, two really good basketball teams. Cleveland obviously had a stretch when they lost Evan Mobley where they took some losses, but they're a very good team when they have their guys. You obviously look at Utah, and we know everything they're capable of in the regular season. But when I watch them, they have really basic rules and really basic organization that play directly into their strengths. Utah's got three really, really good off-the-dribble attackers who can run pick and roll, and Mike Conley and Donovan Mitchell and in Jordan Clarkson. 
And basically, they have, they have really standard spacing rules that make a lot of sense. Everybody else on the floor is a shooter or Rudy Gobert. And when Rudy, goes at, when Rudy Gobert's on the floor, he's either setting a ball screen or he sits in the dunker spot. When he's in the dunker spot, the shooter's positioned in a certain way. When he's setting the ball screen, the shooter's positioned in a certain way. It's all very modern. They all fill and replace when they cut and when they screen. They all have a place they're supposed to go. Everything makes sense. But most importantly, they're playing into their strengths because they're getting an advantage through screens, not just with Rudy Gobert, but with the guards as well, to get Donovan Mitchell downhill, to get Mike Connolly downhill, to get Jordan Clarkson downhill. And from there, they're able to spray out to shooters. And... If you overplay their drive and you go underneath screens, all three of those guys can shoot over the top and knock down threes. So they have a very, very simple offensive t- uh, attack, a system that is proven to work, plays into their best player strengths, and it manifests in a successful basketball system. Same thing goes with Cleveland. They have a two, they play two bigs, but they understand that Jared Allen is definitely as an offensive rebounder and he finishes everything that he catches around the rim. So they use Evan Mobley as the screener so that Evan Mobley can pop to the short roll where he can make reads either throwing it up to uh, Jared Allen at the rim or kicking it out to shooters on the wing. And same thing, Laurie Markkinen, aggressive as a, as a, as a shooter. Isaac Okoro is a little bit more hot and cold, but they use him in that same way. And most importantly, they have guys who can shoot the three off the dribble consistently. Chris Garland is 39% this year on dribble threes. That's a great number. Ricky Rubio is 38% this year on dribble threes. That's a great number. So when they're running their pick and roll game, they're able to get downhill easier because the guards have to panic chase over the top of these screens, which is getting them into the paint, which is creating good stuff. Which brings me back to the Lakers, and this is what drives me nuts with this. LeBron and AD are capable of knocking down jump shots off the dribble. That should always be part of their game. But that should never be their bread and butter. That should always be a counter. It's what they should do after they've established their strengths as a counter or as a fallback. But both LeBron and AD, and we're going to talk about this in a minute because it might have a good, a good percentage of this has to do with spacing. But a lot of it has to do with their own individual identity as well. LeBron and AD don't realize that if they actually get into an off-the-dribble jump shooting contest with the other team, they're almost always going to lose. Why? Because while LeBron and AD, while LeBron and AD are both top tier rim pressuring players, top tier two way versatile forwards, they are definitely not in the top tier. Maybe not even in the second tier. Maybe not even in the third tier of dribble jump shooters. So when you actively lean into not a weakness, but certainly not your strength, you are playing down to the competition. In order for the Lakers to win night in and night out, they need LeBron and AD to be the two best players on the floor. They can't be the two best players on the floor if they consistently lean into their weaknesses, which is dribble shooting, at least relative to what their strengths are, which is being big, versatile, bruising forwards that protect the paint on one end and get into the paint on the other end. And it's frustrating to me to see teams like Utah and Cleveland who know exactly what they are, who who know exactly what they're good at, and play into those. While I watch the Lakers essentially play a caricature of some of pretending to be someone else, which is not what they are. And they will never be able to establish anything consistent night in and night out in this league until they actually lean into their strengths. When the Lakers lean into their strengths as a basket attacking team that sprays out to shooters, they'll suddenly look like one of the best teams in the league because nobody does that as well as them. Nobody does 
what LeBron and AD does. When they actually decide to do that, it will turn things around. And that, that's what's so frustrating about the starting lineup thing. And I, I, I vented a lot about this the other day, having to do with the simple fact that the starting lineup was the most redundant assembly of basketball talent I've ever seen with four rim attacking players and Dwight Howard where LeBron's your best shooter in the lineup. And he, like we've said, is good when he's wide open, but basically bad everywhere else in terms of as a three-point shooter this year. It was bound to fail. But from Frank's perspective, the way he looks at it is if I have THT and Russ out there with LeBron, AD, and Dwight, I should be able to get stops. But consistently this year, when the Lakers have gone big, they haven't been able to get stops. And again, against the Clippers, they had a defensive rating over 120 when those guys were on the floor. And so you have to ask yourself why. Why is it that that group couldn't even get stops? Is some of it LeBron being rusty and and not being engaged defensively? Sure. But everyone else in that lineup was engaged defensively. And it still wasn't working. The reason why has to do with the way that offense and defense are intricately related. This is what we saw with Brooklyn so many times over the course of the last season. When you score the basketball and score often and score easily, you keep the other team out of transition. You constantly get to set your defense. By virtue of doing that, you set yourself up to succeed defensively. When you're constantly missing jump shots, which is what the Lakers did nonstop with their starting lineup in that, in that game, you're constantly living in transition. Except for now you're a team that's living in transition with two really big, slow-footed guys on the floor. And so as a result, the other team is never going against your set defense, always ahead of where your bigs are running up and down the floor, and they're able to consistently generate easy shots. So again, you could play your best defensive lineup, but because you can't score, you're setting your defense up to fail. You actually have a better chance getting stops with Carmelo, Malik Monk, and Wayne Ellington all on the floor if it's LeBron and AD and you're getting baskets, and your defense is set every time, and you're keeping the other team in the half court, and you always have help side defense. Not to mention just the intangible mental effects of seeing the success of your offense and that motivating you to care more about the defensive end because it manifests on the scoreboard, because you're able to generate a margin of victory, and you get to go back to the locker room and see a positive result. Regardless of what you think you're getting out of that giant lineup, if I'm going back to the huddle and it's 18 to 12 at the first TV timeout every damn time, then none of the guys are going to buy in on the defensive end. None of the guys are going to feel like sprinting back in transition consistently because they're not seeing the result, because they're not seeing the positive, and because they're not motivated in that regard. The Lakers absolutely have to start leaning into their strengths. They absolutely have to start favoring the offense, start leaning into what they're good at, which will inevitably help them in the areas that they're bad at. All the time throughout NBA history, if you took random metrics that measured the average points per possession in transition and the average points per possession after made baskets, the average points per possession on made baskets is way lower because you're consistently set in your defense. So, Frank, is he can't see the forest for the trees here. All he can think about is defensive rebounding and defense and that, and that physicality, containment on the perimeter, 
the ability to be able to, to shut off the paint. And he's failing to see the, the fact that you're not even getting Dwight and AD set up under the basket. You're not even getting your point of attack defenders in a position where they have an advantage. Instead, everyone's on their heels. Instead, everyone's trailing. Instead, the help defense isn't even set up because you're living in transition because you can't score a basket. And until that little detail gets worked out, I I just don't see this team hitting its ceiling. This is an offensive-minded team. It's very clear in their priorities. The only way you'll ever get them to defend at a high level is if you get them scoring consistently. That's where this team needs to lean. All right, so the last thing I got for today was uh, I wanted to give my current MVP to this point in the season. Don't think it's super controversial, but I think at the end of the day, this is a player who's been dragged pretty relentlessly over the course of the last two years, um, especially by the people that I primarily have been surrounded by as a Laker fan and as, as, as a LeBron fan, and that's Steph Curry. And I think he deserves recognition for what he's doing and what he has done. And so I wanted to take a few minutes today to get into that. You guys know I'm a LeBron fan. I think that when he's healthy and engaged, there's nobody who brings what he brings to the table. And guys, when he does, when he finally does this year, I'll be the first guy on that train. But that train hasn't even left the station at this point, so there's no point in talking about it. When I'm evaluating players, and this is something that I've been consistent with from the very beginning, when I'm ranking players at the top of the league, I always look at three criteria. Offensively, I look at playmaking and scoring. Can you consistently attack a matchup in isolation to generate offense? That's super valuable, especially when you get into late playoff rounds when everybody's switching everything and actions cease to work and it's all about who can win the one-on-one matchups. And then second, that playmaking part is incredibly valuable because when you are the kind of player who can score in isolation, inevitably the defense will start sending multiple bodies at you, whether it's through what you're seeing it with Anthony Davis, just packing the paint and sending doubles over, or if it's like Steph where guys are you know chasing him all over the floor even when he doesn't have the ball, or what it, if it's like LeBron and Russ where you're driving to the basket and guys are caving into you so open three-point shooters are there. Regardless, that ability to consistently make defenses pay for sending additional defensive attention your way, that's also super valuable. And then lastly, defensive versatility. And notice it's defensive versatility and not defensive ability. Because while Rudy Gobert, for instance, is the best defender you could possibly have in a regular season environment, he's more like the fifth or sixth best defender in the playoff environment because he's not as versatile. He's not as good when you consistently make him cover ground on the perimeter. Whereas Anthony Davis, for instance, appears to be a better defensive player than Gobert in the playoffs because he's more versatile on the perimeter. So I look at those three things as the primary indicators of a player's value, especially in the late rounds of the postseason. So that's what I'm going to rank on. And for the longest time, it's been LeBron for me because I was thought he was I thought he was the only player in the league who crossed all three boxes. He was the only player in the league that if you left him on an island against just about anybody, he was going to get what he wanted. He was the only player in the league that when you send defensive attention his way, he's going to find the open man and make you pay consistently. And he was the only player in the league who also, in addition to those two things, could defend multiple positions and be an anchor to a high-level playoff defense. 
There are lots of players who do variations of those three things. Maybe they're really good isolation scorers, but they can't create for others. Maybe they can create for others, but they're not great isolation scorers. Maybe they're great defensively, but they're more limited offensively. So on and so on and so on and so on. Every player in the league has weaknesses in one of those areas. Except for LeBron, when he's at the top of his game. And that's why I always thought he was the best player in the league. But I can't give him that nod right now because he's a below-average defensive player right now because he's just not caring. And his legs aren't really underneath him, so he hasn't looked great offensively. He hasn't made a consistent effort to try to get the ball inside, which is what the team desperately needs him to do. He's holding the vast majority of his basketball ability in reserve right now for some reason. And we'll find out what that is. It's not really worth discussing. I think we're going to see flashes out of LeBron soon, but that's not here yet. Meanwhile, I have Steph Curry, who's my MVP through a fourth of the season. Offensively, he's not a great playmaker in the sense that with the ball in his hands, he's going to consistently pick you apart with the pass. But as I've discussed several times on the pod, on the pod before, his ability to attract defensive attention off the ball is every bit as valuable as high-level playmaking. Because what I look at high-level playmaking as is the ability to generate high-quality shots that aren't yours. So for a guy like LeBron or for a guy like Nikola Jokic or for a guy like Luka Doncic, it's about in isolation drawing attention and making reads. But for Steph, it's different. For Steph, it's I'm running off of this double pin down and two guys come after me. And so the guy at the top of the key, which is usually Draymond, is going to hit Andre Iguodala or whoever it is, quick slipping to the basket for a dunk. Steph's not making that pass, but he's generating that look with his gravity. To me, that kind of fills that same mold. And then up until a couple days ago, I'm pretty sure this is still the case, but Steph is the best isolation player in basketball right now in terms of point per possession. As of a couple days ago, he was at 1.3 points per isolation possession. That is an insane number. Think of it, most high-level isolation players are close to one point per possession because it's considered a generally inefficient basketball play. And Steph is more efficient in isolation than any NBA team is for the whole season. Throwing out isolation, that's counting your transition possessions, that's counting your wide-open dunks under the basket and everything. Steph is more efficient than that when he's in isolation. So he's checking two of those boxes extremely well. And then he's also turned himself into an above-average defender. It's been, like a, it's been like a slow ascent from him on that front. Back before, when he was on the 2014 Olympic team, everyone was critical of him for not being a good defensive player, him and Clay. And Bowling and Clay embraced that. Clay advanced, obviously, faster and became one of the best perimeter defenders in the league. But Steph pretty quickly became serviceable. But in 2016, you know, teams would pick on him namely the Cavs, with Kyrie Irving and LeBron. But then it turned into like, okay, now picking on him is not a great idea because he's kind of holding his ground. And now it's flat out turned into he is a disruptive defender. He's got good size. He's got really good instincts. He's really good with his hands. He defends without fouling, and isolating him is a fool's errand. Yeah, it might be a better option than some of the other guys on the floor to attack, and so he still will get attacked for that reason. But Steph is not tissue paper at the point of attack. I would firmly describe him as, a, as an above-average defender. And so he's checking two of those boxes. And then on the third one, he's not checking the box in the way that a Dennis or a LeBron or an Anthony Davis would at the top of their game. But it's very much not a weakness for him anymore. And when you factor that in with his leadership ability 
And with what he brings on a night-to-night basis in the regular season, I think he has the best case right now to be considered not just the MVP, but the best player in all of basketball. You know, I, I have a huge problem with the incessant need for people covering the league to vault unproven players into that conversation. Like, I love Nikola Jokic. He's definitely trending in that direction. I think he could be the best player in the league someday soon. But do you know how insulting it is to look at guys like LeBron, to look at guys like Steph, to look at guys like KD, to look like look at guys like Giannis or even Kawhi who have done what Jokic has done, but at the highest possible level and hold it and held up the Larry O'Brien Trophy? How can you possibly vault Jokic above those guys before he's had the opportunity to do the same? I get it. The night in and night out stuff in the regular season is definitely valuable. You can't just completely count that anymore. It's my, one of my biggest pet peeves with LeBron fans. They want to be like, oh, he's age 37. It's not fair to ask him to do this, blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's fine. But then he can't be the best player in the world. And for all of you guys saying that, LeBron was trying every single night last season. LeBron was trying every single night in 2020 when I thought he should have been the MVP. So you are the only one who thinks he shouldn't be trying. LeBron definitely thinks he should be. He knows he's mailing it in. Most of the nights this season. But Jokic, as great as it is that he's dominating night in and night out in the regular season, and I want to give him credit for that, I can't put him ahead of guys who have done that and succeeded at the highest level of basketball. Steph is that guy right now. Steph is the guy that is doing what Jokic is doing in the regular season, carrying a team to the extent that they are in contention for the number one overall seed. While at the same time, He has the championship pedigree. He has been the bona fide best player on a championship team. I have seen his game translate on both ends of the floor at the highest levels of basketball. He has to get the nod over a guy like Jokic. It's disrespectful not to. And I think in general, when we are giving that title out, that level of recognition, we need to err on the side of being slower to dole that out rather than quicker. We're so quick to be like a 10-game stretch. Jokic was the best player on the floor in all 10 games. That's awesome. I've loved He's become a flat-out good defensive player. I'm loving what I'm seeing from Jokic. He can't get the nod over guys who have done it at the highest level. That just can't be the way that we make that decision. And the last thing I'll say about Steph, you know, it's hard with LeBron fans because Steph has always been – you know, the guy that has been the biggest antagonist to LeBron in his career. I I see all the time, particularly with people that I follow, the negativity that they send in that direction, which is all like kind of residual scar tissue from that rivalry that took place literally all the way through the play-in game last year. But you have to take your hat off to what this guy is accomplishing. I think Steph, I don't think Steph is nearly as good as LeBron. at least over over the course of his career. I don't think he should even be in that conversation in terms of at the same level. That said, he is clearly the number two from this era. And so denigrating him, especially for you LeBron fans, it doesn't accomplish what you think it does. Denigrating Steph minimizes everything. That's not the route to go even if you are trying to control some kind of narrative. The reality is, is Steph has definitively been better than Kevin Durant in this era, than Kawhi Leonard in this era, than really, really good basketball players in this era. And then what happened was, is he was in a situation where Klay Thompson got hurt and Draymond Green was out to start the season and 
you know, the team floundered for a couple of years and they missed the playoffs twice. And everyone used it as an opportunity to kick Steph when he was down. When anybody who was paying attention was like, ah, he's every bit as good as he's ever been. Just, he's just playing with G-leaguers. He's playing with G-leaguers and Draymond. And then even when you dove into the numbers, when they played Steph and Draymond without uh, James Wiseman, they were killing teams. And they were way over 500. So even our little concocted version of his failures wasn't as bad as people thought it was. And you know what, LeBron fans? I, I do believe that when he's got it all together, he's that guy. When he puts it all together, I will be probably leaning that direction again. But for now, you got to give the nod to Steph. There's nobody close. Even Kevin Durant isn't bringing night in and night out, especially on the defensive end, what Steph is bringing. KD's my number two right now in both the MVP race and in that ranking. But I think Steph has a clear hold on that number one spot. And I just hope people appreciate him and what he's brought over the course of the last few years, even though it hasn't materialized in team success up to this point. Because Steph is, without a shadow of a doubt, a top 10 player of all time, in my opinion, and easily a top two player of this era. And undercutting him just doesn't resonate with me. It seems like crappy narrative construction and lame behavior from disgruntled, you know, sore losery LeBron fans. That, that, that's, just, that's just lame to me. I can't get behind that. I'm not rooting for Steph, obviously. I'm rooting for the Lakers. I, I hope they get it together. I hope LeBron gets championship number five. That's what I'm rooting for. But I also got to call it like I see it. And right now, Steph's that guy. He's the one that deserves the recognition. He's the one that has the playoff pedigree. He's also giving it to you every night in the regular season. He has to get that title. And interestingly enough, I think this is the first time in his career that he's had that title. I think in 2019, you had to give it to Kawhi. Uh, I know a lot of Warriors fans think that in 2015 and 2016, he had a for LeBron. I don't think it was particularly close. But here we are, year 2021, Steph, I think, 33. He's the best player in the world. And I, and I think he's got a firm grasp on that, a, a discernible grasp on that. And, and I'm happy for him, and I think he deserves the recognition, and I hope more people get on that train. All right, guys, that's all I have for today. This is going to air on Dash Radio tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Tomorrow night, after Lakers-Celtics, Raj and I will be back for our normal post-game show. As always, we appreciate your support. This will be on our podcast feed shortly, and we will see you guys tomorrow night.